2: Hello everyone, Uh, Andy Richter here uh, with another episode of The Three Questions, and I'm talking to an old pal today, and I'm talking face-to-face, which is always nice, because that's a rarity in these disease-ridden times, Uh, but I get to talk to Ed Helms. Um, Hi. Hi, Ed, how are you? Hey, pretty terrific. Yeah. Yeah. You're here, I mean, aside from your love and devotion to me. Um, because you're into this podcast game now too, right? I'm diving in. Is this your
3: first attempt? Uh, yeah, it's well, I've done. I, I feel like I've been on a, a million podcasts just yeah. in this capacity as a guest, right? But yes, my first time hosting a podcast and. Uh, I'm really good at it, as it turns out. <laughs>
2: I listened to the first episode. Did it you was, really? It was really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool.
3: No, I was being obnoxious by saying that, but I uh, I am really really proud of it. Yeah. And, and it's a uh, it's a ton of fun. How did it come together? I had done so many podcast interviews, and I am a I'm a, I'm a big consumer of podcasts. Mm-hmm. And so I really enjoy them, and. I just was wondering, like, where do I fit into this space, or do I even fit into right. the podcast space? I didn't. You do. I do. You do. Okay. Everyone does. All right. My mother
2: does. <laughs> it's it's such a it's such a like such an elastic sure form. It's like uh, sure why not? <laughs> there's no standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you want to hum for twenty five minutes? There yeah, you go. That's a podcast.
3: Who, what was I just hearing? There there's so many fun concepts out there. I, I saw Tig Nataro yesterday, and she was telling me about who was it that has a podcast that's like picking up comedians at the airport and it's called like (laughs) do you need a ride (laughs) i think it's karen Karen kilgariff and and uh someone else chris Fairbanks or something yeah yeah anyway it Um, it
2: does present some uh, logistic issues i guess need guests that
3: are coming in on you know you just find out, and you bring your your tape recorder. Yeah. People, I guess you just hang yeah, around the airport too. with 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 your tape recorder, mm-hmm. right? That's what you use. Uh, so, where was I? Yeah, how it came together. Oh, you know, I have a production company, and we are, we're always making movies and TV shows, and we were thinking, okay, so what can we do, maybe for a podcast, and. Uh, and we were sharing this with some of our good friends at Film Nation and who had just started a podcast mm-hmm. branch because everybody's doing it right uh and they were like hey think, we're trying to figure out a way to make a show about this really cool uh hi- history story mm-hmm. and um and I've always been a little bit of a closet history nerd mm-hmm. and and I'm out of that closet now wow yes congratulations so, thank you um and, into the streets. Uh-huh. And just chanting history, yeah. history. And so uh they 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 just were like, yeah, there's the story. It's about a NATO military exercise in 1983 during the right the peak of the Cold War that uh the, the military exercise was interpreted by the Russians, uh the Soviets as Cover for r- actual war preparation, mm. and um, and there was a there was tremendous fear uh, on the Soviet side that that a nuclear strike was imminent, right? And so they, of course, then put their all of their forces on high alert. It's it's a really wild kind of battle of psychological manipulation and misconceptions and all this, uh, but basically, it's a it's a moment in history where. We may have been closer to an actual nuclear war uh, than ever before, and no one n- knows about it. Yeah. like it was it was kind of buried in the CIA classified archives right. for decades. And only in about I think 1998, it was finally mostly declassified. And since then, it's still taken a ton of really aggressive historians. Getting uh, Freedom of Information Act requests yeah. it to get more and more information, and so so really the story is just emerging, and it's a wild story. Like yeah. it's full of espionage, and and there's and it's deeply and darkly comedic. It kind of yeah. has these Kubrickian undertones. I don't know. It just feels like a. a, a dark satire but it's real it's a name of your
2: podcast is snafu which is the an acronym for situation normal all fucked up yeah and that is kind of like that that pretty much expresses because like i said i I heard the first episode I, i don't know maybe it's just that when you are in the business of having enough weapons to destroy the earth that like yeah. Absurdities will follow. Right. You know what I mean? You're yeah. not it's you know, you're not just talking about blowing up a couple tanks. Right. You're talking about destroying the earth. So it's already nuts. Yeah. It's already crazy. So, of course, then, like any extra wrinkles that are thrown in are going to be. <laughs> yeah.
3: Kubrickian. For you sure. Know? For sure. And when when your policy is is based on mutually assured destruction. Yeah. Like that's what's guiding your your plan for, for nuclear <laughs> missile yeah. armament. Um that's that's insane. Right. Right. And so what makes this situation, Able Archer 83, especially insane, is that the whole time that this is going on, we're being assured as a public that that our foreign policy is is perfectly legit it's the, yeah it's the best possible foreign policy yeah and yet we were at this all, this like very, very scary tipping point. Yeah. I mean, very, when I say very scary, I mean existential tip, yeah, tipping of course, point. Like of course. like the
2: end of humanity. Was this kind of like uh, the work of a lot of researchers and stuff? I mean, are you a writer on it too? Do you kind of sit in on that process? Yeah, we
3: have a great uh, producing team between Film Nation and Gilded Audio and our partners at Gilded Audio and uh, and in my company, Pacific Electric. There are a handful of writers um, I do a lot of editing yeah. and, uh, I did a couple of interviews. Our producers did a ton of interviews and it's a really collaborative process. We do a lot of listening together and, and noting and mm-hmm. kind of editing. And, and the, the idea was we didn't just want to have like a, a, a storytelling narration. We really wanted to build a, a, an audio experience, like a, like we wanted it to feel like a collage with, narration. So one of our models of course is the is the mother of all modern podcasts in my opinion Radio Lab mm-hmm. which just you know really reinvented sound design for uh, or or reinvented the use of sound design in documentary storytelling. Mm-hmm. And uh Jad Abumrad is a college friend of mine. We go way back and I just think that he is he's a pioneer. I mean mm-hmm. er- everything has everything that we're hearing now it feels like a descendant of Radio Lab in some way or another and we are too and we're yeah. a, we're a proud descendant of yeah, Radio Lab yeah. and and so that just means like we've really paid attention to this kind of wanting it to feel cinematic even though it's audio only obviously it's uh you're getting soundscapes you're getting uh w- the the dialogue is woven together the the interviews are woven into the narration it's it's a fun fluid listening experience yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, lots of different textures sure as textures. they say
2: audio textures is this well i mean aside from the daily show which was non-fiction but always playing for a laugh really i mean is this the first thing you've done that's kind of a non-fiction kind of thing because up till now it's been very much acting and mostly comedy acting
3: yeah uh well of course with the notable exception of the hangover which is completely real um <laughs> Uh, and the oh, office, I and the office, which Fuck was a, which is an actual, the office right. was an actual documentary. It was a documentary. So,
2: right, right. Um, All those people were exactly who they were. Uh, Kate
3: Flannery, what a drunk! <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that yeah, that this is, it's a that's a it's a really nice kind of reference to The Daily Show, because they do kind of rhyme with each other. Um, this uh, They're sort of s- satirical storytelling based in reality. Yeah. Yeah, and I um, I hadn't thought of that, but that's uh, astute. But is that something, I mean, is it something you'd kind of like
2: to get more into? I mean, uh, you know, now that you have a company and you're doing this, is it like, hey,
3: this, you know, like maybe television projects or something that would do that? I have to say, the more we dug into Able Archer, the more it just feels like an exciting series or something. I don't know. I don't know what, what will happen, but, but yes, I, I think I enjoy a true crime podcast here and there, but I, I really do love, I, I love just storytelling. Yeah. And I, um i'm a sucker for tr-
2: based on true events yeah i yeah. can watch the shittiest thing in the world but if they're telling me it really
3: happened i'll stick yeah. it out you know yeah uh randall park and i had a show on peacock last year called true story and, uh-huh. and we would just sit down with people who had insane story just just like random insane stories from their lives yeah you know one guy tells the story of the night he he, he saw uh, Van Halen as a teenager, and it was like this odyssey of a night. Uh, or, or this woman told a story of how she uh, almost went into anaphylactic shock from allergies during her uh, wedding vows, and <laughs> um, and you know just all these crazy stories. And, and then we shot reenactments. You know, we did like heightened comedic reenactments that are kind of woven into the storytelling. Yeah, um, kind of in the drunk history vein. Yeah, but, yeah. But, um, but and well, that, it's, a that great, was, it's a great one, because it,
2: I mean, especially I mean, how did you find people's stories? Did that just kind of everyone touched
3: on people in their lives? Because everybody's got something nutty. You know, we really had to dig um, because everyone has a cra- everyone has crazy stories, right. but they don't always necessarily translate into a good TV segment. Right. So um, we really scoured um, a lot of you know, local news stories g- going back and and. And then storytelling um, venues like the Moth uh, on NPR, yeah. the great storytelling show, um, and and lots of other just kind of storytelling contexts yeah. that where people had already shared these things, and uh, and then we reached out and we wound up with uh, with a great, just a phenomenal group of people, and we we shot a season of this this show, True Story. It's really really fun, yeah. And and I think what makes it special, to your point, is. It does like it, you can't believe it's true. Yeah, like these are totally true stories, and they're they're so human because you're hearing the person who lived it. Yeah, tell it, and and Randall and I we would sit down with the person, and our producers knew the story, but we didn't. Randall and I had never heard the story, so we would just nice uh, we would just hear it for the first time.
2: And right. in, in that, that's in, my
3: level of prep. That's what
0: I yeah. like.
2: <laughs> Go into a thing and it, it, on purpose not know anything. Yeah,
0: yeah, right.
3: Do I not have to do anything? Yeah. Yeah. Sign me up. Well, how much prep? None. Sounds like my kind of thing. Even better. And so in that way, we were sort of the surrogate for the audience because we we would then ask all the questions that just came to us organically. Like, wait, what? You did this. You said what? And uh, it's super fun. I, I don't know if we'll if we'll do another season or not. But man, that was a fun, sounds fun, fun. show. A, yeah. yeah,
2: I want to check it out. I was I wasn't even aware of it. Way to go, Peacock. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, did this love a storytelling? Uh, because I'm the same way. I love stories. I and I and I love plot. And I, there's so many times I've lost so much sleep in my life watching something shitty. And being like, oh, "Fuck, I gotta know what happens." Yeah, like totally. It's not, you know, like, yeah. And and but by... I, I imagine the the villain dies. Yeah, like that's probably what happens. Andy, you can go to
3: bed, but no, I have to see it. I will say, like, my, like at some point, and it was around Damian Lindelof's Lost. Yeah, like the creation of that show, it was right around there that the TV writing community really realized. Uh, the the kind of crystal meth of cliffhangers, yes. like that they can that they can really hook you with a certain kind of storytelling by just introducing open questions. Yes. And uh, and then you're and then you are hooked because yeah. you just want to know the answers. And I remember watching Lost and I I have such deep respect for that show because it I think it pushed a lot of. Uh, boundaries at the time but I'm also furious at that show because it. it, it, I watched one or two and I was like "Uh, I don't
2: believe that these people (laughs) know where this is going I'm out fuck you if you don't know where you're going I'm not
3: getting in the car with you it's so fun it is such a fun ride that show But, but I will say there were so many times where I was like Hold on, guys. If that <laughs> if if this character would just walk over there and yep. talk to this character, you could settle this whole yep. plot line.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
3: but they're you're just not letting them talk. Yep. That's infuriating.
2: Yep, yep. And there was a lot on of an that. island. Yeah, where there's only a certain right. amount of people. Like they, um, they just won't mention it to each other.
3: But that said, they did. They really, they really found uh, a, a way to just. Open questions that I think that I feel like was revolutionary in, in mm-hmm. story. I mean, obviously, cliffhangers have been around a long time, right? I mean, even I remember the Dukes of Hazard. it would have great cliffhangers when I was a kid, but but like this this way of just kind of constantly leaving you with like five things that you're yeah. desperate to know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, all of a sudden, so many shows were doing that they and
2: in classic TV tradition, too, they broke it. I watch uh, one of my dorky dad shows is uh, "Forged in Fire," the knife making show. Have oh, you ever sh-
3: seen that? No, but I, 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 it sounds heavenly.
2: It's, it's like four weirdos come in and they're, you know, given a challenge to make a knife, mm-hmm. and then there's like knife makers and a, and a ha- hunky host, and then they make the knives. Every fucking act is a is a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Like you know, well, I just got to hammer this thing out, and then, uh oh. There's an impurity. And then, it's like, and then cut, to, yeah. cut to commercial. And then the yeah. uh-oh is just like, you know, drop my hammer. Oh, God, I, I got beard oil on <laughs> yeah, the blade. Yeah. What That's do I right. do now? Yeah.
0: Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance. Jewelry.
2: Can't you tell my loves so yeah, no, cliffhangers now are done to
3: death. Yeah. I mean, uh it is interesting if you watch a lot of those shows, and there was about a a year, maybe a year and a half, where um my wife and I and a couple of friends were just just had like a bachelor, I don't know, addiction. Like we just yeah. were we were watching it all the time and kind of just but but obviously, and I think enjoying it in the way that most people do, which is, like, you just feel superior to Yes. Everyone yes. And you're like, yes. but you're not. I mean, you're really not. But the funny thing is, if you watch. <laughs> you're watching them. Yeah, so exactly. who's really, the, yeah. you know, who's, who's controlling the,
2: who? Yeah, who's in the high status position Um
3: but, uh, but you do, if you watch enough of it, you really start to see a lot of patterns yes. emerge. And, yes. th- and then you're starting to see, like, the production. Yep. Uh, the, what like how the producers are manipulating the stories? Yeah, you start to hear the producers' notes. Exactly. Like you got to really be angry at her. Yeah. Or oh, okay. Or you know. or like the producer is sort of teasing a question. You'll hear like four characters kind of answer the same rhetorical question. Right. And you're like, oh, clearly the producer sat them down and asked right. them. The I same wonder thing. where she was last night. Yeah. Where was she last night? Yeah. Where was she last night? Yeah. You know. And uh and and that that's kind of when it. I, I think a lot of people don't mind that. Like yeah. they, they watch that and they, that's part of the fun. It's comforting like, too, I um, think. But then you start to see how the, the contestants on these shows also understand those patterns yes. and those dynamics. And they start to play into all of the archetypes and the roles and like, Oh, this person's clearly like chosen to be a villain and yeah. they've chosen to sort of like be the mean, rude one and, yeah, and yeah. they're getting a lot of mileage out of it and they know it and, and they're having a blast. And, I once I got so steeped in those patterns, I was like, eh, this isn't fun anymore. Yeah. But but I, I, but I also but I, I can appreciate how that's also kind of fun to, right. to watch it, watch it through that with that lens and kind of get it. But that
2: kind of TV, too, is always fun when you watch it with somebody.
3: Yeah. You know, like yeah. that's it, it. It's
2: something that you, like as a shared experience. It's so much better than, you know, like if you're just watching it by yourself. Um, now you you grew up in Atlanta, right? Mm-hmm. And um, was there like a lot of emphasis on kind of storytelling? I mean, your was your family your family? They weren't really in any sort of creative
3: type of things, were they? No one was like in in any kind of entertainment uh, profession. But I will say, so I grew up in Atlanta, but I went to um, summer camp in up in North Carolina in the mountains and. And uh, my mom worked at a camp up uh, at a different. She worked at a, I went to an all boys camp. She worked. She worked at a girls camp. It was kind of the sister camp. So we spent a lot of time up in the in kind of up in Appalachia as a kid. And that's really where I, uh, where I think my love of mountain music and bl- yeah. bluegrass, and I'm you know a big banjo player and all that stuff. Um, but also the great storytelling traditions of Appalachia kind of seeped into me. And I oh, we, at camp there yeah. would be yeah, so, so, great. So, we, so we would have these uh, these visitors, you know, come to the the campfire ceremonies at camp and just and they're like basically professional storytellers, but they were mountain people that would come and just, you know, tell these great old tales. And they go by different names. There are some that are that they call grandfather tales, and then there are some they call Jack tales because they they're they're derivations of the of the classic British fairy tales about mm. Jack, like Jack and the Beanstalk and all that stuff. Um, but they're they're different. They're they're through a an Appalachian lens, so they're about yeah. these kind of like really clever characters, Jack and his brothers. Uh, Tom and uh, Will, and and you know sometimes all three of them would be in a story. Sometimes it's just Jack. They were colloquially just called Jack Tales. That's what I remember, and I just loved these storytellers that would come and sit and just a whole you know fifty kids would sit in a, on a gymnasium floor, just wrapped in yeah. attention, and and this this person is just telling these wild tall tales, and they're they're ridiculous, you know. It, it might be a version of Jack and the Beanstalk or it might be a version of, you know, Jack uh, uh, and, and the uh, outsmarts the devil or, you know, yeah, some. The, yeah, sure. these, just, these just riveting, awesome, wonderful stories that, you know, told by people who um, who have really honed the craft of yeah. storytelling. And I think that really, really resonated with me. And yeah. I, I've i now I've collected some books uh, of of a lot of those old Uh, Appalachian stories and and they're so wonderful. They're just like they're just such rich tales and um, it's also
2: kind of like something that we've been doing before we could write. Oh yeah. You know I mean it's like an old person sitting telling telling kids a story that's been told a million times before. Yeah. like You know we were just barely out of the
3: trees and we started doing that. Oh yeah. Yeah And, and, and you know these great Greek epics and so forth, yeah. like that, you know, th- and these were, these were stories were memorized by, yeah, by individuals. Uh, they're hours long, mm-hmm. right? And, and, or, or, or it would take a week to tell a story. Uh, and, and w- people just internalize these things. Yeah. You're right. But it's just, a, it's such an incredible, I think, part of the human story is, is how humans craft narratives. And and the narratives help us make sense of the world. Um, There's a lot written in psychology now about how you write your own story, like your own history, how Mm -hmm. you write that story can have dramatic effects on on your mental health. Yeah. So if you if you look back on your life and you sort of like frame it as a struggle towards an optimistic outcome, you're going to have a healthier outlook on life. If you look back and you tell your and your story is a is a struggle with a with a more difficult or downward outcome, yeah, you might have more mental health struggles. And and these are these aren't just arbitrary things that we can choose to do. Yeah, they, they, these are kind of reflexive things. But there are ways it seems that that the stories we tell, whether it's about ourselves, about our the worlds we live in, the uh, the relationships that we have, that can have really powerful impacts on. Are like sort of the prism that through which we see the world. Yeah, yeah.
2: One of the things that I have here is that you were you had like a a serious heart surgery when you were thirteen, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how impactful that was on just kind of the formation of a worldview. And I mean, and had this heart condition like uh, hampered you when you were growing up? Were you like one of those kids that your mom and dad were always worried that? That's really funny.
3: Uh, I remember telling this story on Cone on one of my first Conan appearances oh, probably really? like 20 years ago. Yeah.
2: Uh, and you haven't and talked about it
3: since? Never no. I, <laughs> no one's ever brought it up. Um, no, but uh it's yeah, it, so it's an interesting question. Um I was diagnosed at birth with uh with basically a heart murmur, which is something a lot of people have and they 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 can often be benign. Um, But it's caused by some irregularity in the shape of your arteries Mm. uh, or in the shape of your heart chambers or in the valves themselves. Um, Some irregularity. I had a narrowing, like kind of an hourglass narrowing um, on my uh, aorta and uh, pulmonary uh, arteries. And Mm. so so I had a kind of a double murmur, actually. And it was not a problem. When I was born, it was just it was something that was observed and noted, and my parents were told immediately and they were very, very worried. (laughs) But but we had this amazing um, pediatric cardiologist who became a dear, dear family friend, uh, Dr. Plough, and and he basically kind of nurtured us all the way through. Uh, And and the the prognosis at that time was he's fine you know, this kid is fine, but just we're just going to keep an eye on it. Yeah. And then there's a chance when he hits puberty and and has a growth spurt that the uh, the kind of relative um, difference in the deformity could become problematic. Mm-hmm. And and it did. So when I hit about 12, um, they were seeing that the narr- these narrowing parts were not growing at the same rate as the rest of me. Mm. So Uh, So that so they came became worse, essentially. Could you feel a physical uh, effects of that? Yeah. So most of my childhood, nothing at all. You know, I was a very rambunctious, active kid, you know, tons of sports and and craziness. And and then I think around 11, 12, I just couldn't keep up in gym class the Mm -hmm. same way, like you know we'd be running around a track or something and i was always kind of towards the the back of the pack if not last and i i didn't really i, w- I was very frustrated by that but sure. i but i didn't i didn't notice that I, that there was any problem i just didn't have the same stamina yeah and around that time my cardiologist pediatric cardiologist was saying yeah, I think we're gonna, let's start talking about surgery because this is gonna need, we're gonna need to correct this. Mm -hmm. And so it was a a long ramp into the surgery, about a year where we were talking about it and and kind of consulting with the surgeon, uh, this amazing surgeon, Willis Williams, uh, who um, has since passed away, but uh, really like a remarkable uh, pediatric cardiologist surgeon, and um, and he, so that's, that's all to say it wasn't sudden. It wasn't something mm. that, that was like, oh my God, he like wheel him into the, yeah, the, yeah. Oh, the, you know, the operating room right away. It was, it was this thing that had been building and I'd had lots of tests, uh, heart catheterizations, which are kind of these unpleasant tests where yeah. they stick a camera up your, what's the artery in your thigh? <laughs> the the big femoral. Yeah. Is that your femoral? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they they uh, they go in through your thigh and they put a camera. They stick a yeah. camera all the way up into your heart and, yeah. and they can get a really good view of what's going on. And I'd had a few of those and they had a really good idea of what the problem was and exactly how to fix it. And um, and the surgeon was incredibly confident and reassur- reassuring. And yeah. so I think we were all my family, my parents, and me were all somewhat anxious, but also feeling fairly like this was an inevitable thing. And here we go. We're going into it Was it
2: scheduled around school? Like, was it scheduled yeah. so it ruined your summer? Yeah. Uh. Well, it,
3: it, so it was scheduled uh, uh, the first day of spring break. Ah. And so I went into surgery on, I, I mean, I'm, I think I went in on Monday and then I was in the, the you know, intensive care for a few days. And then and then the the regular hospital for a few days and then i was home uh after about 8 days um recovering and i recovered very quickly you mm-hmm. know as a cuz i was just a kid yeah, like i was just yeah. an a really active kid and i was back at school like 2 weeks later but but just sort of going for like a couple of hours right, and then coming home and and the real worry was not <laughs> the, 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 what my cardiologist said was the thing I'm most worried about is some kid running by you in the hall and like bu- bumping into you yeah. because your, your sternum is still healing. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Like it's such an invasive yeah. uh, operation and, and that's, that's way more dangerous than anything you're going to do just act, to your heart. Yeah. Actively. Yeah, yeah. Like your heart is healing and everything's looking good. And then it was an incredibly successful outcome. I became a varsity swimmer on my high school swim team. Oh, wow. To just. Yeah. And, and I still I see my cardiologist regularly now. And uh, and it's it's still a really great outcome. That's great. Oh, I'm so, I feel like I was
2: really hoping for like, it made you, you know, like a dark weakling. Yeah. Who, you know, <laughs> who then was, was shunned by society and then decided I'll get on the daily show.
3: Yeah. You a know? lot of rage. Yeah. At, at the, at the, all these, you know, the things that you can't control. It did give me a really powerful college essay. Because oh, I remember, yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. filling out my college applications, and I had just seen Dead Poets Society, and I was obsessed with Carpe Diem, and I yeah. was like, you know, this is yeah. So I just got a new lease on life because I got this heart surgery, and I was told that that I would probably not have lived past my early twenties. Wow, uh, and that and that I would have declined pretty rapidly. Yeah. from the from that you know from my late teens into my twenties, and then died, and so knowing that. Um, uh, you know, I still was a just a rambunctious, bullheaded, idiot kid. And so that none of that really sank in. I don't think kids can process that sort of no, like existential insanity. They know. And um, I mean, thank God they can. Yeah. They, you know,
2: it's it's a
3: yeah. And your survival so, mechanism. Totally. And and you're so invincible as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, but but I did understand intellectually, like, oh, this is something I can <laughs> I can spin into a sure a, a good college essay. Yeah.
0: Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May twelfth. Find tons of gifts from only thirty dollars at Nordstrom Rack: fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.
1: Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network. So whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T Mobile.com.
2: Can't you tell my loves it, girl? When you went to college, what were you gonna be? Did you did you were you still kinda of in this kind of feeling of storytelling mode and music and and were you playing music by that time? Oh yeah, yeah. It and were, was it? Did you have a musical family? Because you're, vi- you know, I mean, I, I yeah. get, I got, I've gotten the feeling, and like, and I've been around you in a musical context that you might do that if, if you had to choose one, acting or music. I feel like you might
3: prefer the music. Uh, yeah, I, I do. Um... I love it so much, and I, I my family was musical, but not seriously. Yeah, like everyone could, everyone was good at singing, carrying a tune, loved singing. No one really played an instrument, but I think my my mom could dink around on a piano. My grandfather in Nashville was really he was very musical, had lots tons of instruments around. Yeah. And um, and a lot of toy instruments that were so fun for us as kids. Mm -hmm. And and um, and I just really I started taking kind of dinking around on a piano when I was eight or so. And then I got lessons, I think, when I was 10 or 12 on the piano. And then I started I got my first guitar at 13 and started taking lessons immediately. And I just had this awesome teacher who 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 was exactly what I wanted. He was really steeped in a lot of the great folk traditions and bluegrass traditions, and he was an amazing banjo player too. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he just taught me, all, like just opened my brain up to all this awesome, that I was curious about, but I didn't have any access to. Yeah. And he kind of saw that curiosity and was like, well, there's this and there's this and this. Yeah. And, and uh, You should listen to Bill Monroe and yeah, stuff like that. Exactly, now. and um, and and that's really. And then he taught me some some banjo, and that was uh, that. That's how I got that was into the, that. That was the gateway drug. Exactly <laughs> to the bluegrass hardcore bluegrass <laughs> junkie. Um, I, I actually at that time I, all I wanted to do was comedy. You know, yeah. I was I was. This is such a generic story, but it is also mine, which is that. I had watched Saturday Night Live obsessively as a kid. Like starting at eight years old yeah. with, with you know, Martin Short and and Joe Piscopo and all those guys. Yeah. And uh and then watched it all the way obsessively through I high school. I think Martin Short
2: would really be happy that you those are the two names you pick yeah <laughs> you'd probably be like oh yes me and joe me and joe really yeah <laughs> freaking frack
3: yeah uh, oh we were thick as thieves uh, no but um i so so when i went to college and I, I i there was a thing on my college application that was like you know what do you want to be and i'd re- i'd wrote like i'm gonna be in tv production Cause I just want, I knew I wanted to work in comedy Yeah,
2: and, uh, and you're probably a little too shy to say the, you know, like the boastful thing of like, I'll help people look at other people. Not, I want everyone to look at me. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
3: um, well I was also very protective of my aspirations because I didn't come from a, a background that, that understood or supported that kind sure. of, that kind of aspiration and not, not because my parents weren't supportive or my friends weren't, Supportive, but just because they literally didn't understand yeah. how anyone could do that, how it works. And so and I was like, I don't want to hear anyone's opinions. I don't want any I don't want anyone to to tell me I can't do it. So I just could of kept it to myself. But I was very excited to go to a place like Oberlin, which has an incredible performing arts tradition across the board. Obviously, the The music there is incredible. Yeah. There's a conservatory that's world renowned. Yeah, and that was really like exciting. Like one of the to top two or three in the country. Yeah, probably. and yeah. I mean in the world, it's yeah. a, it's up there. And um, and then of course the the theater and dance programs and all the arts programs are just a big deal there. And that was that that just was very exciting to me. And uh, and I loved Oberlin. I had such a great experience there. And it really pushed me creatively, and uh, and then I graduated and went straight to New York City. Was like, oh wow! Yeah, jumped right in the comedy trenches. Right, yeah, right yeah. Away.
2: Doing that. Yeah. I, I always wonder because I have you know I have a couple comedy friends who play banjo, and I wonder if Steve Martin was a inspiration
3: to you for it. Steve has. Steve is a huge inspiration to me in a thousand different ways. Yeah, he's not the reason I took up the banjo. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, I was because I have uh, a couple <laughs> friends who play banjo, and it's like I could.
2: It's kind of like yeah, yeah. I just Steve Martin did it. It looked cool. I liked the sound of it. You of know.
3: course, no. I think he he did so. He's he's really in so many ways a uh, uh, an ambassador for banjo. like yeah. a, like a bluegrass ambassador. Because I think he's a he's a point of entry for a lot of people. They're like, "This is great! This yeah. is just great music!" and and he writes such wonderful music on his banjo that I think just welcomes uh, listeners and and gets people exploring other stuff. Um, but I I got into the banjo I got into that music because growing up in the South I was a little bit of like an an you know an angsty uh, adolescent and I. I really, I, I you know, I had that kind of like Holden Caulfield complex of like, everything's everyone's fake, everyone's yeah. everyone's a phony. Like I, you know, I gotta find the real stuff, like the most authentic stuff. And so, I didn't, you know, everyone was listening to to pop and rock bands, and I I just was like, that's for the phony idiots. I want to find the source material. Like, where did this all come from? Right. And I sort of dug deep into blues and that and then bluegrass and and being up in the mountains in the summertime and and having a a little closer access to that world uh was incredibly exciting to me and i just found it intoxicating like this is the real deal like yeah. this is there and you know it's 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 just one more iteration it's there's stuff before that of course Sure, but yeah, like yeah. but to me in my sort of simplistic analysis at the time it was it was the origin like this is this is early early stuff and yeah I, and I I got sort of drunk on that like authenticity high of yeah of, of roots music all kinds of roots music yeah. and and so I became a bit of a snob and that <laughs> in I think that well, I,
2: I think also too you just that you have a gene for it or something because is there something about the kind of unchanging nature of it that gives you comfort or something like do you do you like the fact that it's that it's kind of timeless and that, like you can do bluegrass versions of m- more modern songs, but they're still bluegrass. Like there's not, it, it, like you're not really going to like, I mean, I'm sure that there's people out there doing it, but like avant-garde bluegrass seems like a contradiction in terms, you know?
3: Well, there there really is in the last uh, 10 or 15 years uh, well, really, go. I mean, it goes back a lot further than that. But you know, artists like Bela Fleck who mm-hmm. who, I, who really pushed the banjo into um, in, incredible new horizons and yeah. into jazz but that, and all yeah, kinds but that's, of stuff. I mean, that's
2: not bluegrass.
3: You know what I mean? Right? Like, no, it know, isn't. Yeah, bluegrass. Yeah. You're right. But but there are so. But when you say avant garde bluegrass, I think of bluegrass as like an instrumentation so uh-huh. like a guitar a banjo a fiddle a mandolin and yeah. a bass and maybe a dobro and um and those that structure of a band to me is like a traditional bluegrass setup and those kinds of bands you know with bands like the punch brothers and and many others like them uh are doing like really really Different wild stuff. cool progressive and fascinating and riveting exciting things that that bluegrass bands traditionally never did. Now the cool thing about the Punch Brothers is they can play a Jimmy play the shit out of a Jimmy Martin tune, you know, and it's just the best bluegrass version you ever heard. And then they'll go into a Punch Brothers original that's just this like really cool out there uh progressive piece of music and they can just vacillate be- between the two like no problem because they're steeped in the in the traditions yeah. um but just pushing boundaries Chris Thiele is the mandolin player and and really uh I think you know he's a great example like Bela Fleck who just took this instrument and was like there's so much more that this thing can do than what the the blue, cotton that, eye Joe yeah than what yeah. The, the bluegrass traditionalists have done and and uh and I mean mandolin has a rich classical history going back hundreds of years but um but it it also now, it's just, it's such a, it's so fun to see the growth and progress of of that art form. Yeah.
2: Well, what's, um, where, how, what do you, how do you see your future unfolding? I mean, do you think, um, I mean, you're a dad, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, do you think you're going to kind of continue to try and do more uh, television stuff or are you kind of going to, be dilettante-ish and do a little <laughs> bit of
3: everything you know i've just have been so fortunate in my career to work with so many awesome people and uh and i've worked long enough and with a, a wide enough variety of people now that that i kind of know who i want to work with yeah and that to me is the most important thing now. It's, it's like I just want to yeah. I just want to be in work with people who who are incredibly inspiring and then I just get along with yes. really well. The and people you have to spend 12 to 14 hours a day with. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, or or the people that just make me cry with laughter yeah. on a regular basis and um and then I just want to spend time with my family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's my that's my immediate family and also my extended family. We're really close with my wife's family and my family. And it's, I just, wh- I feel really lucky uh, It just to have a lot of things going on and to be at a place where I can be a lot more picky yeah. professionally. Yeah, um, I'm really excited and eager to cultivate music in some new and different ways in my life. And I, 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 at this point, I, I used to play out in Los Angeles pretty regularly at variety shows and stuff. And with a lot of different musicians, I haven't done that in a bunch of years now. Mostly because I think of fatherhood, but mm-hmm. um, but I am playing a ton of music now with my kids, and yeah. so oh, or, or or kind of for my kids. They're not yeah. they're not really playing yet, but um, but I find myself just picking up a guitar even more than I have in a long time, just to have fun with them, and uh, and so I'm eager to. I don't know. I think music is going to is going to be a a meaningful th- part of my professional existence yeah. in the I don't know, in, in the near term.
2: Well, I mean, I, you know, you've had you've had some successes in some big franchises that kind of is a nice bedrock of For, security. Sure. You know? So, I mean, is it do you worry about like, oh, I can't be out of the public eye that much? Is that something that kind of. That that you feel there's a pressure, like you know, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna be picky about what I want, but I can't be too picky yeah. because I don't want to recede too much. Sure, from being on people's minds.
3: Yeah, that there. I mean, th- there is always that gnawing insecurity. Yeah. that sort of your value as a uh, as like an actor or as a public figure kind of is, is 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 a function of your exposure. Yeah. in different. Media. So so, yeah, I think um, I, I used to I used to really feel a lot of pressure about that and probably too much. I think, yeah, like, a, like to a, to an extent, my insecurity was well, outran reality. Mm. Right. And so I I was eager to jump into project after project. And I just I love what I do. And yeah. so I just I love to work now. Um, I don't feel that same pressure i i think there's i feel some of it i and i i do feel like it's it's important to it's it just that it 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 helps your career to stay active but mm-hmm. um but i am not a, i don't feel the same urgency i yeah. and i really like i said before it really i'm so much more um committed to just working on things and with people that i that I love that that are going to inspire me and, yeah. and keep me a happy person yeah. <laughs> instead of just employed. Yeah. And you're right. I'm incredibly fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah. The final of the three questions,
2: which you didn't know what they were, although they are on the tip of everyone's tongue, um, is what have you learned, uh, like throughout life? Like, what do you, do you have like kind of a, a guiding principle that, that, you know your the, your path through all of this stuff has has informed you of. Mm. I hate this question. Mm. Well, all right, just make something up.
3: <laughs> uh, stay hydrated. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, that's that's one. Get a lot of sleep. That's yeah, another. Yeah. And add, and this is just as hacky and trite as anything, but, um, but I I found that um, that. Yeah, I mean it's hard to say cuz it's so trite, but staying a student, right? Yeah. Like staying humble and staying curious. Yeah. And um and just never really uh obviously we all want to feel confident. We yep. all want to feel like we know what's going on and what and and understand how to how to control our our path through life as best we can, but um but but just staying humble and remembering that we really don't no shit. Yeah, in yeah. this world, and uh, and the the more I I, I will say the one of the kind of exciting things about the podcast space ha- has been for me. I've just I, I love psychology podcasts, mm-hmm. or or like even some of the self helpy stuff. That's just like you know exploring different ways of of thinking or being or interacting uh, or ways that maybe that we don't understand uh, ourselves and and so yeah I just I just think staying curious and staying humble and um, and 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 humble doesn't mean like uh, small yeah it just means um, it just means like open to the ways that you may not, understand things yeah that you might be wrong open is (laughs) open is the is
2: the word that i use and i think of it now like being you know a middle-aged man and i you know i look at so many people older than me who are just closed who are just like they've decided yeah i've seen all i want to see i'm just going to kind of you know like like those people that kind of pick a hairstyle when they're 28 and then just do it for the sure. rest of their life <laughs> like there's like a there's like a a, a psychological spiritual way of that like you know nope, no nope, i decided this is the way it is and then they just stay that way and it's just it just seems like dying before you're dead in a way mm. because you're not you're not open to change you're not open to you know and i think also it inspires a lot of fear because yeah. then if you decided oh, yeah. i'm not going to introduce any new information when new information comes along you're like no oh, i don't yeah, know yeah for Yikes.
3: sure yeah i think uh, i think that once you think you understand the world one, once you think you understand your place in the world perfectly and and how everyone else is either right or wrong in in the way they move through the world. Once once you have those fixed positions, you're you're kind of screwed. You're gonna just get angrier and angrier. Yeah. Because uh, you're it's I think it, I think uh, there's Carol Dweck I believe is the author who who wrote a book. I think the book is called Mindset, and basically it's about this. It's about what, having a fixed or open mindset. Yeah in how you navigate life and and the value of an open mindset, it really leads to such a a deeper sense of um equanimity because you can when you're when you have an open mindset, you can just accept uh outcomes that you didn't want. Yeah. <laughs> a little easier. Or you right. can or uh you know you can accept your um, that you don't have control over things that you want. You we all want control. We all mm-hmm. want to be able to just move through the world exactly how we want and and make sure we everything stays safe and perfect. But uh, it just isn't like that. Yeah. And uh, and I th- I think having an open mindset just lets you m- navigate that with a little more grace and and peace. I it's funny when I became. A public figure through which was sort of gradual through the Daily Show mm-hmm. and, then, and then on the Office and then The Hangover was just this huge tipping point like oh now okay now everyone knows who I am yeah and that was that was incredibly exciting obviously for a million reasons but also very terrifying because yeah. there's no going back and suddenly you as a as a as a famous person, you can no longer control your environment, how yeah. you how you move through an environment, right. because there's so many people reacting yeah. to you.
2: And you lose your anonymity, you lose right. the power of being invisible.
3: And uh, and that, I think, was terrifying, and it was a lot of this, you know, and anal- now, like, trying to think through how to, re- the value of relinquishing control and just kind of rolling with the, what the way that it had to be that, um, that reinforced some of these ideas for me. Yeah. Not only do we individually want so desperately to control our little micro environments, mm-hmm. but we as a species need to control our our Absolutely. macro environment. Yeah. It's uh, it can't end well. No. Like, can't we as a species be a little more have a more open mindset? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we're learning. Like,
2: you know, it's like the planet is <laughs> fighting back by like, yeah. you know. The
3: sea level rising. I don't even f- know that I would characterize it as fighting back as much as just sort of like snickering at us. Yeah. It's just like <laughs> yeah, yeah, flicking us. Yeah. Well,
2: thank you so much. Let's end it on that positive note. Way to go, humanity. Uh, the new
3: the new podcast, SNAFU. Uh, is it out now? Or is yeah. It- so uh, I don't. It's there are a few episodes out now. It's weekly. Comes out on Wednesdays. On iHeart, but it's anywhere you listen to your podcasts. It's, uh, you can get it. And, um, anything else you want people check to check it out? Any other stuff you want you got out there? Rutherford Falls. Yep. I'm so proud of that show. It's and on, on Peacock and, we, and the Randall Park show. Yeah. Uh, True Story. That's another recent one that I love. And, uh, yeah, I think, um, that, that's a that's a healthy dose of, yeah, that's Ed, enough. of Helms. That's enough. Yeah. That's enough. <laughs> don't don't O OD on, me, on Helms. <laughs> well,
2: Ed Helms, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I really appreciate you spending the time with us, and I appreciate all of you out there spending your time with us, too. And I'll be back next week. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco production. It is produced by Sean Doherty and engineered by Rob Schulte. Additional engineering support by Eduardo Perez and Joanna Samuel. Executive produced by Joanna Solitaroff, Adam Sachs, and Jeff Ross. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Maddie Ogden. Research by Alyssa Grawl. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to The Three Questions with Andy Richter wherever you get your podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a-growing?
3: Can't you feel it in the showing a love
0: this has been a team cocoa production in association with earwolf
3: love the flexibility of working
1: in all sorts of places.